some of my college, former college group folks. <clears throat> Looking around, I see some of my college, college kids in here. I got two points today. That's it, two points. And if you see the terror wash across their face, you'll understand what that means. Uh, I want to say a couple things real quick. We, want, we need to be praying for the Seely family. Uh, Mike's grandson passed away unexpectedly last week. Also for uh, Miss Flo Phelps, her sister passed away this morning, so remember them. Also, uh, you know, we live in a culture that, that uh, is kind of at a crossroads, I think. So let me just make this really clear. This is not a three-day weekend for us to just grill and, and have a good time without thinking about what it's for. Uh, many women have given their lives for our country, for our freedoms, and this is the weekend that we honor them. Memorial Day tomorrow is the day we recognize and remember their sacrifice. So while we grieve with these two families in our church uh, who have lost loved ones, I would encourage you to also take a moment to grieve for those uh, families who have lost uh, service members. Uh, it's been said, it's, it's an old cliche, but you know, cliches are cliches because they're true. There's only two people ever been willing to die for you. One of those was Jesus Christ who died for your eternal freedom. And the other one is the American soldier who died for your earthly freedom. And we need to make sure that we take that into account. Uh, I want to talk to you today from 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our trudge, our dirge <laughs> through 1 Peter. I was three or four Sundays on 1 Peter 1. We're halfway through it. Yay. Uh, but I want to talk to you today about answering the call. So as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, the last thing I want to say before we get into the message is I just want to talk about how blessed we are as a church. Uh, we have a worship pastor who's out this weekend. Uh, we have our sound guy who's out this weekend. And we have our, really our primary uh, video guy who's out this weekend. So we've got three people pinch hitting today. Uh, we've got uh, Peyton uh, has kind of been pinch hitting, helping with some of the cameras. Uh, Brian Holderfield is pinch hitting back there running the booth. And uh, obviously Carrie, uh, I think we've about more carry out. <laughs> he keeps pinch hitting and we just keep handing him a bat. And the carry does a great job. So I just want to say how much I appreciate all of them stepping up uh, and helping out with us this weekend. First um, Peter chapter 1 is, is an interesting uh, study. And I've told you before that Peter's primary focus is on uh, uh, persecution and how we overcome that, how we continue to serve the Lord. So this, this concept today of answering the call I think is an important thing for us to do. Uh, for us to look at, because part of what we've done in the American church, one of the things that we have really uh, slacked on, and I would even go as so far as to say a place where we have failed in the American church, is uh, to explain exactly what this invitation to follow Christ entails. Uh, when I went into the Navy, uh, some of y'all can, can relate to this, and if you're a recruiter, I apologize, but recruiters are trying to recruit. It's what they do. I see Norman over there laughing. I know Ron probably experienced something like that. Navy recruiters are all the same, I think. Hey, Navy's great. You're going to love it. See the world. You know, it's awesome, man. It's, you know, man, Grant, it, man, this, right? They, now, they didn't tell you that when I got to my first ship, my boat was 40-something years old. My, my, my bed was about that thick, and laying in my bed, I could put my elbow in my, in my sternum, and I could touch with my fist the, the bottom of the bed above me, and we're stacked three high. My first deployment, we had some showers had hot water and some showers had cold water. And you didn't really know what you were going to get. And if you're picturing showers, the Navy guy's already laughing. Don't picture, you know, turn the little thing, get it, just get it just like I want it and step in. You had a, a hose with a nozzle with a push button on the end of it. 
Basically, you had a water hose is what you had for a shower. And so on my first deployment, the first 30 or 40 days of the deployment before they finally figured it out, I would get in one shower and I would hold, it was so hot it would, it would literally just about burn you. I would get in and I would aim it at the floor away from my little toes and I would spray it until I started to condensate. I got damp. And then I would step over to the shower next to me and I would soap up real fast while trying, to, trying to keep the heat. And then I would, and I'd hit that cold water and I'd rinse off. As long as, listen, how much soap I got off of me depending on how long I could withstand the freezing cold water. And then I would hang it back up and I'd run back over to the other shower and I would, I would hit it in the floor again until I thawed out. That was my shower situation for the first 30 or 45 days of our deployment. That wasn't in the recruiting video. That wasn't in the paperwork. I looked back and I was like, now where did he say sleep in a little small space on a thin mattress and get hot and or cold showers wasn't in there so I get why we've done it and I understand that the the draw to try to make following Jesus seem like a picnic I just can't do it because it's not the truth it's the most rewarding thing you'll ever do but it does not negate suffering it does not negate death it does not negate hard times depression struggles it doesn't do that much of our focus in the American church has been the response at the end of the service, but not clarifying what that response means. And I mentioned it a few weeks ago, and I told this morning at 8.30, I'm dumb enough to say it again. I said it, and I was like, man, I didn't believe I said that. And I'm going to say it again. Hunter, you believe that? You do, don't. Wrong person. I need to find somebody that doesn't know me. So here, I said the other day, sometimes being a pastor is kind of like being a professional bass fisherman, but you never catch any fish. You just stand up there on the bow of the boat, just nothing not a bite not a strike not a fish that's what it feels like sometimes so I understand how people get into that thing of let's just try to get a response let's let's milk toast Jesus down let's I've heard it talked about that we, we the problem we have in the church is we've inoculated people with this dead version of Jesus and so they've developed an immunity to it They've, they've developed an immunity to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They've developed an immunity to the conviction of the Word of God when it tells me that I'm sinner, uh, a sinner in need of a Savior, that I've continually got to battle my flesh versus His Spirit to try to make sure that I'm living for Christ. Our message has become, come follow Jesus and all your troubles will go away. Or we, our message has become, are you scared of hell? Do you want to go to hell? Well, if you don't want to go to hell, here's what you do. You slip your hand up real quick, slip it right back down. Nobody's looking. Everybody, ooh, close your eyes. Don't look. Yeah, don't look. Slip your hand up right back down. And then you're going to heaven. That, that's not in here. A commitment to follow Jesus is more than staying away from hell. A commitment to follow Jesus is more than just in the dark of night when nobody's looking, you just slip your hand up right back down and you're going to heaven. That's a terrible thing to convince people of. When we're telling people, we're calling people to respond to the call of Christ, to answer the call, we need to make clear what that call is. The call to follow Jesus is a call to surrender to His purposes. You're, you're laying your life down for His purposes. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it perfectly in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he said this, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Not come and find your best life now. Not come and find that all of your problems have suddenly gone away because you said, I don't want to go to hell, I want to follow Jesus. 
or when you accept Jesus into your heart. Hey, Jesus does not need your acceptance. Make Jesus Lord of your life. I got news for you. You ain't making nothing. You better go home and put some cookies in the oven if you want to make something. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life. Listen to me, church. He is the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of the atheist's life. He's the Lord of the universe. You don't make him anything. You fall on your face before a holy God and surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at today what Peter tells us about the call of God on the life of a follower of Jesus. And I've given you the warning. Two points. Let's stand and we're going to read these verses from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. About three quarters fired, fired up, Becky, and ain't even read the scripture yet. Y'all ain't got a casserole in the oven, do you? <laughs> I'm kidding. Not really. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated they inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you concerning things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This is unique. We're going to get into this in a minute. But look at this, look at this sentence. This is stupefying. Angels desire to look into these things. Isn't that incredible? Verse 13, therefore get your minds ready for action, being self-disciplined, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. What's the Greek word for all mean? You're right. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Father God, speak to us today with resounding clarity through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through your flawed servant for the glory of my King. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing I want us to look at when it comes to answering the call is the value of the call. The value of the call. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is a remarkable thing to think about. Uh, they say that an item is only worth what somebody will pay for it. You ever heard that? That explains our, our, I saw a post on Facebook, I think last night, and it was one of those little plastic kitty dollhouse kind of thing, little playhouse. And it said, one, bed, one bedroom, half bath, 199000 No low offers, I know what I got. That's the housing market right now, right? I mean, it, man, prices have shot up. And, and, and people are trying, it's, nobody can find houses. They'll, they'll give you a mint for, for anything, just trying to get a house. Well, what your house is worth right now is more probably than it would have been a year or two ago. Why is that? Because people are willing to give you more for it now. That's the value of your house. The appraiser comes and says, well, your house sold for this much, and they built it for this much, and so it's only worth this much. But in our economy now, they look at it and go, yeah, but these other five houses just like it sold for 100000 more, so it's worth 100000 more. Well, the gospel should be the same way. When we look at the value of it, it should be very similar. Uh, so let me ask you a question. If, if, let, let me clarify. If it's true that an item is worth what you can get somebody to pay for it, here's the question. What would you pay for your relationship with Jesus? 
what would you pay for your relationship with Jesus? And no, I did not say, what would you pay to stay out of hell? Or how much would you pay to go to heaven? But I'm saying, what would you pay for your relationship with Jesus? What is that worth to you? And here's another good question. What would those closest to you assume that you would pay for your relationship with Jesus? In other words, does your relationship with Jesus look as valuable to others as you consider it to be in your own mind? What would you pay for your relationship with Jesus and what would others close to you assume that you would pay for your relationship with Jesus? That's the question that I want you to kind of turn over in your mind as we're discussing the value of the call. Answering the call of Christ, the value of your call with Christ, your relationship with Christ, what is it worth? I'm going to apologize to all the guys today. I'm about to kick over a hornet's nest for all of you. Ladies, If your husband doesn't know what your favorite movies are, doesn't know what your favorite place to eat is, he doesn't know anything about you, doesn't know what makes you happy, what makes you sad, he doesn't remember the story about your concussion, he doesn't know anything. <laughs> See, if, if, I, if I'm going to get all y'all in trouble, I might as well get me in trouble with Hillary anyway. But, but if, you're, if your husband doesn't know anything about you, then how valuable is your relationship to him? If he doesn't remember your birthday, doesn't remember your anniversary, sorry guys, I'm just, man, I'm just mowing people down up here this morning, I so apologize, but I'm trying to drive a point home. If, if that's the case, ladies, how much do you think your husband values your relationship, his relationship with you? Let me tell you something, I value my relationship with my wife. I value my relationship with my wife, April, above every other earthly relationship that I have. You know why? Because it's worth it to me. How much would you pay for it? That's the value. The value to me is, is you can't put a price on it. That's why I'm not stepping out of my marriage. That's why I'm not trying to cheat on my wife. That's why I'm not trying to look and, and even, I don't even, I don't want a window shop. I hear these idiots say, oh, you look at the menu as long as you come home for supper. You're going to get home and get hungry. Your relationship with your wife should look valuable to you so that you invest in her. You know about her. You're concerned about her. You want to hear from her. Your relationship with Jesus is the same. Don't tell me you have a a strong relationship with Jesus so that you value your relationship with Christ and you don't read your Bible. You don't pray. You You don't minister. You don't show up. You don't do anything. You don't give. You certainly don't give because that's my money and I'm keeping it. You know, I've said this a hundred times, and I'll say it a thousand more if the Lord leads me, leaves me here long enough. You can tell where your commitment lies. You can tell what's important to you by looking at your checkbook and your calendar. And if your checkbook and your calendar point to something other than Jesus, you need to rearrange your life. Because if you understand the value of the relationship you have with Jesus, it should be priceless. It should be more priceless than any earthly relationship or any earthly thing. We have a society that's looking for happiness in every place other than in Christ. And that's the only place it will be found. They're looking in drugs and alcohol and sexual relationships and sexual perversion and gender identity and and status and and who I voted for and who I hate and I'm going to be mad at this person, what news affiliation uh, that I have or what Twitter followers. Listen to me. All of that stuff is going to burn up. And happiness and contentment can only be found in the relationship with Jesus Christ. So really, there's going to be four looks at this value of the call, and that's the first one is our look. I want to give you three more perspectives, though. First, from the Old Testament. 
Peter says that the prophets couldn't really understand all that the message they brought would mean once Jesus came and after he gave his life on the cross. Can you just imagine that? that the Holy Spirit is inspiring them to write all these words, and they're writing them going like, what? <laughs> you know, like, Isaiah's writing about this suffering servant. So you just picture Isaiah. Isaiah's writing, and he's going, all right, you know, he, you know his image couldn't even look, didn't even look like a man. God, is that your son is going to come do that? The Messiah, the Christ? Okay, you know, and he's writing all this stuff down. He's trying to fathom what all this stuff means. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said this about it. He's talking about the Old Testament uh, uh, prophets and stuff. He said they saw the sufferings of the Messiah and also the glory that would follow, but they could not fully understand the connection between the two. And, and the way he puts it here is he says basically they looked ahead and saw like two mountain peaks. They saw Mount Calvary, where the Messiah would suffer and die in Isaiah 53, and they saw Mount Olivet, where Christ would return in glory from Zechariah 14.4. But here's what Wiersbe says. They see the two mountains, but they can't see the valley in between, and that's where we live. We, live, we reside in the valley, the church age, between the mount where he would suffer and die and the mount where he will return, and that's where we live, and they couldn't see it. From their perspective, they're way back in the history and they're looking forward and they can just see the mountaintops and they're trying to understand it, they're trying to process it, but they can't. And so that's what he's talking about here, that they're just trying to figure it out. Imagine how excited Isaiah would have been if he could have read about Jesus from the Gospels. Just think about that for a minute. Y'all, this shook me when I wrote this, when I was sitting there processing all of this stuff and trying to figure out where, where there was a sermon in some of this. I tried to write a sermon just on the two mountains, and I, I just felt like it was going to leave a lot of you flat a little bit. But then I was thinking about these two mountains, and man, I never thought about that. How do, how do the Old Testament prophets figure this out, and they're writing this stuff down? And then all of a sudden it hit me, like, what would Isaiah do if he could have a conversation or just read the book of Matthew? Think about it. This, this suffering servant that Isaiah wrote about, he couldn't really comprehend fully. And then he reads a book written by a man who walked with him, who broke bread with him, who ministered with him, who watched him cast out demons, raise the dead, heal the sick, call out the authority, speak truth to power. Can you imagine how that must have, could have, would have made Isaiah feel? Or, let me give you another one. What about Jeremiah reading all that God accomplished through Peter and Paul? The weeping prophet Jeremiah never had a convert. We, we just finished reading his book uh, in our, in our uh, churches, reading through the Bible together. And we just finished Jeremiah. Think about all the stuff that Jeremiah had to tell Israel uh, and Judah. All the, all the terrible negative stuff he had to tell them. And they never repented. They never listened to him. They ignored him. They threw him in a pit. They, they just treated him horribly. Can you imagine him reading the book of Acts? And he gets to read that Peter stands in the room and he's got a window out. And he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Can you imagine how Jeremiah would have felt? I can imagine he would be saying, oh, Lord, it was worth it. All that I went through and all that I suffered, give your message, even though your message was ignored, it led. You truly were working all things together for my good and your glory, that you led it to be where this man Peter could stand and profess Christ, and people would turn to him. And this man Paul would plant churches and radically change the landscape of our world for Jesus. And one final one. This one blew me away. Picture Daniel reading the book of Revelation. <laughs> you talking about a page turner, Miss Friend. Daniel's like, <sighs> can you imagine when John went to heaven? 
and, and, and Daniel's standing there going, is that him? Hey, hey, me, me and you need to talk. <laughs> me and you need to compare notes. You know, I saw a statue, and I saw a bunch of woolly booger animals, and I, I man, tell me what you saw. John's like, bruh, bruh, you don't even know the stuff I saw. I just blew my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm saw this swirling. Can you imagine the conversation those two must have had? Y'all listen to me, church. Listen to me, all kidding aside. We got the whole book. We got the whole book. God help us if we read one or the other and we don't look at the whole book and think about the glorious grace that God has shown us to allow us to live in the valley between the two mountains where we can look back and see the old and understand it, have great theologians that have expounded books and books and books on the Old Testament, how to understand it, how to apply it, and then look at the New Testament text and see God revealing himself and finishing the work that he had talked about doing in the Old Testament. We've got it right there. We've got it on our devices, and we don't give it near enough time. That should make you value the blessing we have to have the entire Bible for our own so we can read it anytime we want. Secondly, the New Testament perspective. We can't be too hard on the Old Testament prophets because the disciples walked with Jesus, and even they didn't fully understand it. In Matthew 16, you have this great story where Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist. And he says, okay, but yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, you know, speak first, think later, my dude. Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet just a few verses later, we see Jesus telling him, look at all this suffering I'm going to go through. Peter says, hey, don't you dare tell them that you're going to say, you're not going to suffer. I wouldn't let that happen to you. told him, get behind me, Satan. He just bragged on him because God revealed that answer to you, Peter. You didn't get that from your own flesh. God revealed that to you. And you said, I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then just a few verses later in the same chapter, Peter, losing his mind, apparently says, Ah, oh, Jesus, I'm not going to let you go to the cross and die. That's what I'm here for, Peter. So even Peter didn't understand it. He was, he was walking close to Jesus. And then we know they didn't get it even in Acts 1. Even in Acts 1, they have seen the resurrected Christ. They are converse, having a conversation with the resurrected Jesus. And they ask him this question. Hey, is now the time you're going to restore Israel? <laughs> can, you, can you picture that? Can you, can you imagine uh, some of y'all, let's let's see. We, let's go. We, you know, let's let's get in a fight. I mean, y'all have worked with with youth, taught like youth Sunday school. All right, y'all can relate, right? Where you've been teaching something, and teaching something, and then they ask a question, and you're like, "What? We've been I've been teaching about this for an hour and forty five minutes, and you just asked me something. What? That must have been Jesus's response to his disciples, right?" You've watched me live and work and, and do the ministry and heal and raise. And, and then I died on the cross, hello. And then I rose from the grave three days later, hello. And now I'm telling you I'm about to send to the Father and you're going to stay here and work. And you go, uh, hey, Jesus, is this the time you're going to give Israel back their authority? No. That's not what, 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 what? No. So it's easy for us to look at the Old Testament prophets and say, well, that's common, simple, they didn't get it. The disciples didn't either. So, so here's the thought that I want you to get. If the 12 men closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry didn't quite grasp it all, and it's easy to assume the prophets didn't either, then that should be very reassuring to us when we still struggle with it. 
I think sometimes we can be a little hard on ourselves when we don't get both ends of the strings together and be able to tie a pretty little knot. Jen, you ever been there? I know, I know y'all have, Chris. I know that in, in, in the ministry that God has given y'all with, with foster care and adoption, that there's been times you're like, all right, Lord, I need a little more slack. To get these, I can't get them to tie together. It's the same thing with us when we're trying to figure some of this stuff out. Hey, that's why Paul says work out your own salvation. Keep working it. Work it all the time. Just work it until you die. You're not going to get it figured out on this side of heaven. You're going to need that glorified mind to be able to really fully understand all of this. Keep working it out. The third perspective I want to give you is from the angels. I mentioned that in verse 12. A remarkable sentence. Angels desire to look into these things. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, he says, We have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. He's talking about the apostles. He said, I think God's put us in last place. He, we, we've had such a tough go of it, I think we're like a spectacle that everybody's watching us and everybody's looking at us. And, and what Peter is saying here is, even the angels desire to look into the relationship we have with God because it's so foreign to them. And listen, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be that guy, you know, beat you over the head with, your, with a theology stick, but that's what frustrates me when I see people, somebody passes away, oh, they got their angel wings, they got demoted? Y'all, we don't get demoted when we die. If we're a follower of Jesus, we're, listen, becoming an angel is a demotion. I ain't taking a pay cut. I'm not getting demoted when I die. I'm getting, I'm getting promoted. I'm going to get out of this old flesh and not have this stuff pulling on me, but I'm not turning into an angel. We don't get our angel wings. We get to be in the present. The, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what we are. When we die, we are present with the Lord. Here's what I want you to understand. Remember, a third of the angels fell with Lucifer. A third of the angels are dumb enough to follow the guy who thought he was going to overthrow God. I think I know some people like that. Unfallen angels don't need salvation, while fallen angels can attain salvation, but both groups cannot understand salvation because they're created differently. There's a different mechanism. There's a different relationship. There's a different purpose there. So imagine the confusion among the heavenly angels at how salvation works. And then imagine the heartbreak among the fallen angels to realize that it's not even available to them. Now, here's the point of that one. Imagine how ridiculous we look to both groups of angels if we don't value the matchless grace that God has offered us through Christ Jesus. So that's the value of the call. I warned you there were only two points. Number two, the validation of the call. Now we see a therefore in verse 13. Anytime you see a therefore, it's a pivot. And what it means is... Because of all this stuff I just said, here's some stuff that I'm going to stack on top of that. Because all that stuff I said was true, this is true too. And so what he's saying is since we've been given this living hope through Jesus, it's more valuable than anything, then there are some things that we need to look for to validate our call. Now, again, you don't work your way to heaven. You work because you're on your way to heaven. Does that make sense? I want to be clear about this. When I say validate your call, I'm not talking about punching your ticket. I'm talking about the things that are evidence in your life that your ticket has been punched. There are three things. The first thing we need to do is set our minds. Some translations say here in verse 13 where it says get your minds ready. Some say prepare your minds for action. Or, or some of the older translations say gird up the loins of your mind. Blech. Blech. I don't like to think about my mind having loins, so I'm, I like to just like move. All right, just all right. That's yeah. That's I get it. 
but, but listen, that's a really good, it's a principle that's really good that they translate it that way because it's exactly what God told Moses and Aaron back in Exodus 12, 11 when he's talking about the, the Passover. Listen to what he says. Here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel. Sandals on your feet, staff on your hand. You'd eat it in a hurry. It's the Lord's Passover. Gird yourself. Gird your loins. Here's what that means, all right? <clears throat> this is the visual. You've got a robe on. The robe was the traditional dress. What they would do is they would take the robe and they would bunch it up wrap it around, tie it, so that way they could run. They weren't running with a robe like, like running in a long dress. Imagine running in a long dress, ladies, hopefully just ladies, running in a long dress. Neil, what you, you look guilty over there, Neil. Okay, I'm just checking. Imagine running in a long dress. You wouldn't better run very well, right? Now, some of y'all are probably old enough to remember when you were a little kid and you were, had to wear long dresses all the time. If you get out there and start playing, you would pull it up. This is the same concept. So what he's saying is there, gird up your robes, gird up your loins, tie it around there so you can run. And the same concept here is what Peter's trying to bring to our minds about how we think. Gird up the loins of your mind. Basically, what in our vernacular would be roll up the sleeves of your mind and get ready to go to work. Again, you're not called to sit and soak. You're called to go and make. You're called to be a mover, a shaker, a world changer, a gospel taker, a disciple maker. That's the call of God on your life. You're not called out of your sin into life, out of death into life, to go to heaven. That's not why you're called of God. You're called of God to get other people to go to heaven. Our calling is to be moved, to be mobile, to be active. We live in a culture that wants to dumb down everything and to make it easier to live without thinking. And yet Peter here for the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us we need to put our brains to work. This is contrary to many unbelievers who say that Christianity is a crutch. It's a crutch for the slow-minded and the weak. Oh, you just need that religion as a crutch. Let me tell you something. Religion ain't a crutch. Religion is a motivator. It lets me know that I was lost and now found, and therefore I want to found everybody else I can. I want to get the gospel as it is to people as they are. I want to make sure that everybody gets a chance to know the relationship with Jesus that I know. I want to make sure everybody else sees the Jesus that I know. That's what we're called to do. That's what the motivation is for us. And that's why Peter says, set your minds right. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready to go. It's impossible for me to think that people who truly look into how we got here and how this universe operates can help but land that there had to be something supernatural involved. If they're being realistic, if they're being fair about it, they have to look at it all and say there must be something supernatural involved. And that's where we as followers of Christ need to be able to say, and here is the supernatural thing that's involved. His name is Jesus. We have to be sober-minded, it says there, self-disciplined. Undisciplined thinking leads to chaotic lives, while disciplined thinking leads to productive lives. Listen, even when I was lost and undone, even when I was living like the devil, I didn't want to be out of control. I wanted to get drunk, but I didn't want to get drunk to where I couldn't think and function. And by the way, that's, that's kind of a counterproductive way to go about it. I want to be in control, but I'm going to take something that's going to make me less in control. Good idea. <clears throat> I didn't say I was smart back then. I just said I was lost. I want to be in control. That's a human thing. That's a human trait that we have. Here's the, here's the dirty little secret. You're never in control. He is. He's sovereign. You're not. So set your minds. The second thing we need to do is set our hopes 
this phrase, set your hope or rest your hope fully, is asking us to anchor our lives in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. In verse 3, uh, he, Peter says that we've been given a, a living hope, a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, and that should be where we set our focus, church. If we focus only on heaven, we're going to waste our time on earth. But if we focus on the hope of Christ, then we can accomplish the mission of making disciples and we get heaven thrown in. This is the analogy I always use. It, thinking you're going to get saved just to go to heaven is like buying a Sunday and eating the cherry and throwing the Sunday away. Heaven is the cherry on top of the Sunday. The abundant life we have through Christ is the Sunday. That's where we ought to be spending our time and enjoying the, the relationship we have with Jesus. Matthew 12, 21, the nations will put their hope in his name. Romans 8, 24, now in this hope we are saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? This relationship with Jesus is unseen, and that's where we put our hope. What Christ did, I didn't see Jesus go to the cross, but I know he went there. Just as sure as I know that I'm standing on my feet, I know that Christ went to the cross. And just as sure as I know he went to the cross, I know he rose from the grave. But it's an unseen thing. The concept here is if we're going to live for Jesus, it's going to require mental, physical, and spiritual effort and focus. Because we are followers of Jesus, and that is not a spectator sport. When we focus on eternity, it also helps us process hardships and disappointments here on earth. Here's something that I always kind of, kind of gravitate to when things get really bad. And we've seen some tough times, April and I, in our almost 21 years of marriage. We've had a lot of loss. We've had a lot of disappointment and problems. A lot of just struggles. Here's what I always get to a point. Some, not always, but when it gets really dark, here's what I think. What's that got to do with me going to heaven? What's that got to do with my relationship with Jesus? Is that loss, is that hurt, is that pain, is that tribulation, is that temptation, is it going to take away my relationship with Jesus? No. Well, then I can bear it. Even the unbearable. Even the unfathomable. You can process it when you just look at it in the proper perspective. Hey, I'm still, I, I'm still loved by God. Even if I've got this limp. Paul said I had three times I prayed God would take this thorn in the flesh from me and he didn't do it. You know what Paul said? All right then, I'm just going to keep serving Jesus. Paul didn't say, well, Lord, if, you, if I had enough faith, you'd take that thorn from me. He didn't say that. He also didn't say, well, Lord, since you ain't going to take that, that thorn from me, I ain't preaching the gospel one more time until you th take that thorn from my flesh. He didn't say that. He said, I prayed the Lord three times. He'd take it away. He didn't take it away, so we're just going to rock on with what we got. That's the Kevin translation of that. The last, thing we need to be, the last thing we need to do is to be set apart. Now, the clear separation between the children of God and the children of wrath is made here in that we are God's children, and if we are, we will be obedient to his commands rather than being conformed to the ways of the world. Do you see Peter's words, and does it make you hearken over to Romans 12? It ought to. It did for me. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. What, what did Peter say over here? He said, you don't be conformed to your former ignorance, uh, the desires of your former ignorance. Listen, we're not to be conformed either to the ways of the world or to our former ignorance. Why? We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can know what God's will is and we can do it. In a world that holds nonconformity in high regard, it's interesting that this is only true if it means not conforming to biblical morality or holy living. Our, cultural se our culture celebrates those who are different, but only if they are different like everybody else. 
Being different from the biblical standard for living is celebrated while being different from our immoral culture is demonized. Now, here's an example, and I'm not, listen, I ain't got nothing, before I even say this, I don't, I, you get tattoos, I don't care, get piercing, that's between you and the Lord, I, I ain't up here, I don't care, I don't have a preference one way or the other. I survived four years of the Navy without a tattoo, I can probably make it the rest of the way. But I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not upset about it one way or the other, but I'm just going to use that as an, analog, as an analogy so you understand where I'm coming from. In this world today, it's like, well, I'm going to get a tattoo so I'm be like everybody else, different. I'm going to get everything, I'm going to look like I had a wreck in my car and my tackle box was open so I can be different like everybody else. I want to I dress like this so I can be different like everybody else. I want to be like this so I can be different like everybody else. We live in a culture that's confused people so badly, we don't even know what pronouns to call them. And if you don't call me the right pronoun, we're going to fight. Think about that. That is this desire to be different. We don't want to be the same. We don't want to conform. We want to be nonconformist. But, but the Bible tells you to be a nonconformist. Don't conform to the ways of the world. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Oh, no, you can't do that. You can be different. You just can't be godly. You can be different. You just can't live for Jesus. You can be different, but you keep all that religious stuff at the house. Do you see the problem with that? Do you see the rebellious nature of our own flesh coming out in our culture? This is what we're looking at. And that's why we have to understand that God has not called us to be like everybody else. He's called us to be set apart. It's also interesting to note that he's calling us out of our former ignorance. Some of us need to get a little bit further away from that. You amen or oh me, I don't care which. But some of us are a little bit too close to our former ignorance. Some of us haven't worked hard enough to be sanctified and be moving away from that. Listen, y'all seen me before. Justification is when you come to Christ. Glorification is when you're in the presence of Jesus. But that in-between part can be a rough ride sometimes. It's called sanctification. As we're moving away from our flesh and more into the likeness of our God. We're moving more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We need to be more obedient to Him. More obedient to the Word of God. And to do that, we've got to know the Word of God. If we are heirs of God, if we are children of God, then we should take on the character of our Father. Our Father is holy, and He's called us to be holy. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. That word glory there is hagios in the Greek, and it means sacred, pure, consecrated, deserving of reverence. i got two quotes for you. If you're not interested in being holy, you're not interested in being happy. And if you're not interested in holiness, then you aren't interested in heaven. Y'all know we're going to be holy in heaven, right? Because all this flesh is going to be gone. Why, why are we just so content with waiting until we get there to be holy? Why, why is it that we think we can live like hell and, and still go to heaven? My buddy Stacy Stafford one time preached that sermon. Best, best quote I've ever heard about it. He said, people want to see how much hell they can have in them and still make it into heaven. Can't do that. That's not what that says. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. In other words, be perfect, be complete, be, be what God is to the best of your ability. Are you going to make it? No. But does that mean you shouldn't try? No. Let me, talk, I'm, let me talk to some of these young boys here. Not my daughter, by the way. Aim high. Look around at these men in this room. Ain't one of them the best-looking guy, best-looking person in the relationship. 
You know what that means? We did it right. Don't settle. Don't give. Don't quit. Aim high, man. Ask. All she can tell you is no. You know how many times I got turned down by April before she finally went out with me? That's none of your business. Listen, holiness is the bar. That's what we should strive to achieve. Just because it's impossible on this side of heaven to achieve it doesn't mean you don't strive for it. Doesn't mean you don't ask God to help you get to it. This is a great little poem, little, just a little brief poem by William Griffith Thomas. He says, I will not work my soul to save for that my Lord alone has done, but I will work like any slave because I'm loved by God's dear son. Adrian Rogers says there are three reasons for obedience. A slave obeys because he has to. An employee obeys because he needs to. But a loving son, a loving child obeys because he wants to. You can't be a new, a new creation as Paul calls every believer in 2 Corinthians 5.17 and still live by your old nature. Our fleshly desires are some kind, sometimes referred to as an Adamic nature. Because we get it from Adam, because Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do, and so sin was passed through the Father, and that's why Jesus didn't have a biological earthly father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and his mother Mary. And so we have this Adamic nature. You want to know how pervasive that Adamic nature is? Look at the, look at the first child of the first couple. He killed his little brother because he was jealous and hateful. He was jealous of his little brother, and he murdered him, and that's what our Adamic nature is. That's what it causes us to do, how it causes us to think. And we've got to battle against that if we're going to honor God, if we're going to be holy as he is holy. Roman 5, uh, Romans 5 says that sin entered through one man, Adam, and just as sin entered through one man, Adam, forgiveness and life came into the world through one man, Jesus. John Calvin said about that, for certainly Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. Spurgeon said this, holiness is not the way to Christ, but Christ is the way to holiness. You want to be more holy, get more Jesus. You want to be more holy, live like Jesus. Listen, it's really not hard to be more holy. Just stop doing what you want to do and start doing what God is calling you to do. 1 John 3, 9, no one, is born, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. In other words, habitually sin. Because God's seed remains in them, they can't go on sinning because they've been born of God. Colossians 3, 4, and 5, when the Messiah who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And then Romans 6, 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Here, here's the dirty secret about slavery. Everybody's a slave. You're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin, one or the other. You don't have an option to opt out. Now, I'm going to close with this. I warned you I had two points. <laughs> Here, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to give you three quotes and three questions, and then we're going to be done, okay? So y'all just bear with me. Dial back in. I know it's a little long, but just dial back in with me. The value of the call, the validation of the call. And the, the, the thought here is how we answer the call. So here's quote number one. This is from Spurgeon. He says, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. 1 John 1.8 says, uh, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here's question number one. Is there sin in your life that's keeping you from walking closely with Jesus? Pretty simple. Is there sin in your life that's keeping you from walking closely with Jesus? 
Number two, his quote number two. William Griffith Thomas said, There is a fifth gospel being written, the work of Jesus Christ in the hearts and lives of men and nations. So here's question number two. What, do, what does the gospel your life is writing say to those who are reading it every day? And make no mistake, they're all reading it. I was talking to Miss Flo this morning, and we were talking about just the, the joy of knowing that her sister had a relationship with Christ, and so her earthly pain is over, and you mourn that, but you celebrate her homegoing. And I said, and here's the, here's the thing we need to keep in mind. The world is watching us very closely when we suffer. The world is watching us very closely when we suffer. They want to see if this Jesus thing is real. Because it's easy for Jesus to be the Lord of your life when you ain't got any problems. But let the bottom fall out. Let there be loss and pain and hurt and health problems and all that stuff. And then they want to see, ooh, ooh let's lean. Yeah, they're leaning in looking. Let me tell you something. Look at me. Everybody look at me. Don't you miss that opportunity. Jesus said it, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That gives us hope. That's why we don't mourn like those without hope. I talked about that last week. When you go through pain and loss and difficulty, glory to God. Because that gives you a great platform from which to minister and to witness. So what does the gospel your life is writing say to those reading it every day? Quote number three, Louis Barbieri said, True devotion to God is expressed in holy living. Your devotion to God is expressed in holy living. So here's the third question. Does the life you are living express true devotion to God? I'm not talking about a casual connection, a casual friendship. I'm talking about a devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only you can answer those questions. Only you know the truth of those answers. I, I, I mean, I, I know a lot of you pretty well, and I could kind of give a, a, a theory I could say what I think you are or where I think you land or how, you, how I think you answer those questions, but only you can answer those. So the invitation this morning is, is fairly simple. Ask yourself those questions. Evaluate where you stand on those three questions and respond in obedience. If you are truly a follower of Christ, you have to live like it. When you, people say, well, what do you, this is, this is tragic. When you have somebody, especially, we've had a couple of them recently, who were high-profile uh, evangel, evangelical people, either preachers or leaders or whatever, and they, they die, and then after they die, you find out all this terrible stuff about them. And people say, do you think they're in heaven? I don't know. I don't know. God's the judge, not me. But man, I can say this because I've done it a few times. What a joy it is to stand and preach a funeral that's already been preached. When you stand and say, this person is in the presence of Jesus, and I, I would bet my life on it because I watched how they lived. I watched how they, they worked. I watched how they served. I watched how they had set their minds. They had set their hope. They were set apart. I know that they had a value of the call of God, and that validates the call that I can see. So if you would, stand with me this morning. As always, the invitation is simply this. Be obedient. Whatever the Spirit of God is moving you to do, only you know what that is, and only you can respond in obedience to that. So I'm going to say a brief prayer. We're not going to linger. I want you all to listen to me. We're not going to linger. 
I'm going to pray, and then if the Spirit of God is moving you, you need to come have prayer. You need to come make a profession of faith, a rededication. Whatever it is that God is moving you to do, you move in obedience when I say amen, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for our, our sweet congregation, their patience. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word, the richness of it. I just I can't get enough of it. God, you are so amazing and so awesome, and your grace is so just mind-numbing uh, that you poured out your, your son's blood for us. That he came and died a death that I deserve so I could have a life I didn't. God, thank you for that. I pray that today, Lord, that, that what I've said has been clear. Anything that was not was of me. And I pray that if it was if it was not of me that it would or not of you, that it would fall away. But God, I pray that you right now with your Holy Spirit would speak to hearts and lives, would challenge, would change, would convict. God, whatever you want to do, this service is yours. So God, in our brief time, I pray that you would convict and people would have boldness to step out in faith. And we give you praise for that because you're worthy of it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.